We thank you that we can sing of the gospel, Lord, because it's the gospel that saves us and transforms us. And as we think about this morning, what it means that our confections must be our convictions, Lord, I pray that you would give each of us a sense of humility before your word, uh, wanting to let it uh, transform us. We thank you. We love you. We praise you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to be here. Good to worship with you. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. We are continuing our study uh, through Galatians, and we're jumping back in where we left off uh, a few weeks ago. But as we go through Galatians, we're in the middle of a short series on the cruciformed church. We are defining a cruciform church like Paul describes believers in Galatians, as a people shaped by the message of the cross to show the love of the cross. The first week, we considered our engagement with the culture and one another in light of the culture, the hope being that we would see 2024, with all its potential challenges, as really this unique and important opportunity to make Christ known to a world opposed to Christ and yet desperately in need of Christ. But last week, we started to consider the culture of our own church. After all, as I pointed out, while it's important to consider our involvement with the culture out there, the New Testament gives much more attention to the culture right here. And this is because the greatest threat to our church isn't the sin of the world, but the sin in our own hearts. But we also looked at how, through the power of the gospel, we can live out that call to love one another. As we continue that discussion this morning, it does lead us to that question, what kind of culture do we have here at Lighthouse? And what kind of culture are we supposed to have here at Lighthouse? Now, in God's providence, we began our small group study this week of You're Not Crazy, Gospel Sanity for Weary Churches, and the focus is on how, as a church, we must not just preach the gospel, but live out a gospel culture. And fittingly, the first chapter actually looks at Galatians and argues that the gospel, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, must not be compromised, and yet... One of the surest ways you know that a church is holding to the gospel is when the gospel doesn't just determine the creeds of the church, but drives the culture of the church. And this is important because we do have a culture. It's unavoidable. Culture is all around us. Culture being about beliefs and behaviors. It's about customs and norms. It's the way we do life. This means culture doesn't just describe the world's convictions and practices in the way that it does life. It's our convictions and our practices and the way that we do life. Culture is really the water that we swim in. For example, each of our families had, has a culture. I mean, if you visited my family growing up, you would have noticed a distinct culture, right? I'm not sure why this came to mind, but growing up, my brothers and I didn't always take our shoes off in our house. And some of you are like, did they even love Jesus? Like, our world is so fallen, right? To, to reassure you, we all do now. So we got saved and everything you know, went right, but... <laughs> But like every home was different, right? How you viewed school and how you viewed parental authority and free time and money and faith, all of that was the culture you grew up in. Your workplace has a culture. Your sports teams have a culture. Your school has a culture. Your gym has a culture, right? I know one gym advertises a judgment-free zone. They're trying to establish a culture. And importantly, our church, like every church, has a culture. So again, what kind of culture do we have here at Lighthouse? I mean, you might notice little things. We dress fairly casually. I think that's how Jesus wants it. Sermons are a bit long-winded. Goldfish are very popular with this, the under-six crowd. 
uh, front row seats are almost always available. Like that's in my notes because it's almost always available. What kind of culture do we have here at Lighthouse and what kind of culture are we supposed to have here at Lighthouse? I mean, as you can imagine, our culture is vital to who we are and how we do ministry because in the absence of a culture driven by the gospel, we will too easily assume almost a pseudo-Christian culture or even aspects of the worldly culture. And so with this in mind, let's jump into Galatians. Maybe culture isn't the first word you think of when you think about this epistle, but as we'll see this morning, because Galatians is about the gospel, it naturally leads to a discussion of a culture that is influenced by the gospel. So let me read to you our passage, Galatians 3, verses 25 uh, through 28. I'm sorry, verses 26 through 28. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now normally here's where I would, I would remind you of the context, but we'll look at the context in our first point because it kind of explains why our passage is really about the culture of the Galatians churches. So here's our key idea. Gospel conviction will lead to gospel, a gospel culture of unity and love. Gospel conviction will lead to a gospel culture of unity and love. Three ideas. First one is this. A church culture is not driven first by its gospel confessions, but its gospel convictions. Earlier, I mentioned that every church has a culture, but with this, one of the first things we have to recognize is that our culture is heavily influenced by our doctrine. But importantly, I don't mean our, our confessions, what we say we believe, but our convictions, what we truly believe. Because what we say we believe and what we actually believe are not always the same. For example, I'm, I'm guessing most of us would say we should be generous with the church, but is that what we really believe? Now, maybe needless to say, I don't know what people give to the church. I'm not ever counting offering or things like that. But a few months ago, a picture got sent to the staff that in our offering box was not just money and checks, but a coupon for El Pollo Loco. So um, it was actually a pretty good one. It was like $10 off. So if you're going to give one to God, give a good one. Now, I'm not saying that wasn't generous, um, but I'll just say, what we say about things like generosity uh, and what we believe are not always the same, and it comes out in our actions. Now understand that our confessions, what we believe are very important. It's what guides the doctrine of the church. It's our theology. It's what encourages us to hold to our biblical beliefs. But as important as our confessions are, they are fairly meaningless if they're not also our convictions. As one of our pastors said, confessions are the rehearsal of doctrine on our lips, but convictions are the weightiness of doctrine on our hearts. And understand, it's our convictions, those truths that we deeply hold to, that will determine the culture of our church. In the introduction to our book, You're Not Crazy, the authors write this. They say every church has its culture. The question is, how fully does its culture align with its doctrine? Whatever the answer, a church's culture always reveals whatever the people most deeply believe. Not every truth that is preached is believed down at the level of felt shared reality. Some truths are given lip service while others become deeply defining. The sorting process isn't always visible, but the outcome will show themselves in the church's observable culture. All right, so they're saying that, that every church has a culture, but what will determine the culture of the church is not what the church proclaims to believe, but what the church actually and deeply believes. 
And importantly for our study this morning, this idea of our doctrinal convictions determining our cultures actually helps us to understand our passage. And we kind of need this because as we come to our text, it contains a fairly well-known verse, and yet one that seems a bit out of place. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, this verse has been used and misused over the centuries with both wonderful results and dangerous consequences. Wonderfully, it's been used in the fight against slavery. It was a key verse in the abolitionist movement. It's also been used in the fight against racism. On the other hand, it's been used with detriment in issues of gender and sexuality, as well as gender roles within the church and the home. But part of the problem is that people aren't really considering the greater context of the verse. So to appreciate what Paul is trying to accomplish and how it applies to us, we have to really consider not just the immediate context, but really the larger context of the letter. Because at first glance, we notice that it comes at the end of a section in which Paul gives this deeply theological argument as to the purpose of the law in the Old Testament and how it relates to the gospel. So what does ethnicity and social class and gender have to do with that? In other words, why does Paul put this verse here? What we're going to see is that it has to do with the discussion he began the previous chapter as to how a deficiency in gospel conviction is detrimental to gospel culture. So backing up, remember that Paul is writing this letter to counter the claims of these false teachers that were saying you not only need to believe in Jesus, but you also need to hold to certain aspects of the Old Testament law. So so trust in Jesus, but also live according to, to Jewish law. But this was contrary to the true gospel, right? Salvation by grace alone. So we've already pointed out, to really appreciate what Paul is trying to accomplish, we have to keep in mind a couple things. First, this wasn't written primarily to unbelievers who like, needed a correct theology so they could get saved. He was writing to churches. He's writing to believers. He was concerned that they were missing the truth of the gospel and it was affecting their lives. And this leads to the second idea, that this wasn't just kind of a minor theological debate, because a compromised gospel was leading to devastating implications in the Galatian churches. As we'll see, by not fully embracing the gospel, they were struggling to embrace one another. Their shallow faith was leading to a shallow love. Now, we can probably extrapolate some of the problems in the church by looking at chapter 5, when he warns against biting and devouring one another, among other things. But one particular outcome that we see clearly in the letter was that holding to a deluded gospel led to division in the church. We see this in chapter 2, when when Paul shares about the time he had to confront the apostle Peter, Galatians 2.12. He says, "For, uh, for before certain men came from James, he, Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Okay, so what happened, whereas the gospel said that salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, so there's no difference in that sense between Jew and Gentile, this compromised gospel was leading some to argue that Gentiles didn't just have to convert to Christianity, but to Judaism as well. But this led to a division because it meant that some of the Jews were separating from the Gentiles who didn't abide by Old Testament law. But just try to imagine for a second a church where someone said, I don't want to eat with you. I mean, you say that's unhealthy is a bit of an understatement because it's not just about dining arrangements. It was about superiority and inferiority. It was about ethnic pride and ethnic prejudice. It was about division and dysfunction. It was everything the New Testament church was not supposed to be. I understand we studied this story of Peter way back in October. 
So it might seem pretty far removed from our passage at the end of chapter three, but if you were to, in the Galatian church and you were reading through this letter, you would have read this part about Peter just two or three minutes previous to our passage. And you can imagine that story would have lingered in their minds. I mean, imagine someone telling you a story and said, remember that time when I had to confront the pastor because their theology was messed up and they were really being unloving because of it? You probably wouldn't forget it two or three minutes later. And all the more, this was the great apostle Peter. Someone actually called out the man who had spent three years with Jesus and was commissioned by Christ himself for ministry. So kind of imagine that this picture of these false teachers coming in to enslave and, and division within the church family and Peter, the leader of the church, being challenged. It would have all been fresh in their minds. And this starts to make sense of why Paul includes Galatians 3.28, a verse on unity. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, nor uh, there is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. Paul's reminding them that the gospel doesn't lead to division. There aren't pseudo-Gentile Christians and the real Jewish Christians. They were all one in the gospel. Now, we'll, we'll dive deeper into the theology of it all in a moment, but to this first point, do you see how it demonstrates that what we believe and the depth with which we believe it will affect how we live. And so here's the point. Regardless of our confessions, what we say we believe, what will drive the culture of Lighthouse is our actual convictions, what we really and truly believe. So we can't say we want to be a church marked by love and yet let it be marked by harsh and critical attitudes or impatience or selfishness. We can't say what's most important is that we believe the gospel and yet also imply that what's most important is, is who you vote for or, or what you think about some social issue. We can't say, hey, we're all just sinners coming before the cross and then get frustrated that the church actually has sinners in it. Or we, we must let our gospel convictions lead to gospel culture. One more thing before we move on. Re realize that as our confessions become convictions, our culture will then both show Christ's love but also make him and, and make him known. Yesterday we had our counseling teens conference. I, I wish you all could have been there. And one idea that was was good for us to slow down and consider was just to see the teens of our lives, the teens in our families, the teens in this church, as brothers and sisters made in the very image of God. So, so one thing I was thinking about is how 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 we not only not how I'm sorry how do our gospel convictions lead to gospel culture? Not just so that we're nice to one another, but so that we can make the gospel known uh, to those in our church, especially our teens. Because like, if we're honest, it's, it seems like somewhat of a losing battle between us and the culture. Like my sermons are not as engaging as TikTok. Like I'm, I'm not as funny as the memes they look at. They probably want to make a meme of me. They're probably out there. Uh, youth group won't be as entertaining as video games. The beliefs we hold to will seem so narrow-minded compared to the world's beliefs. But here's what we can offer gospel love and gospel kindness and gospel joy. So as they may feel like they're constantly trying to earn the approval and the acceptance of their peers, they, they should be able to come to church on a Sunday morning and know there are hundreds of people who are glad that they and all their messiness are here to be part of our messiness. They should see love, like real gospel-driven love, a love that hopes and believes all things, a love that is patient and kind, a love that, as our speaker said yesterday, doesn't treat teens as a, a bundle of hormones or walking problems like the world might, but precious brothers and sisters. And they should see joy, 
right? palpable joy, a joy that is unexplainable in light of what's going on in the world, and yet a joy that makes our Savior beautiful. May our confession, <clears throat> confessions become convictions so that our culture will both show Christ's love and make him known. So the first idea was that a church's culture is not driven by its gospel confessions, only by its gospel confessions, but its, but its gospel convictions. And that leads to our second idea. A, ch- a church culture driven only by gospel confessions, not conviction, will be marked by distinction and division. Right, we, we, we live in a fallen world. We, we feel that, right? Um, last night, my wife and I were, were eating with our conference speaker and his wife and their daughters, and my wife and this couple were, were all runners to some degree, and, and they were talking about you know, where they like to run and what shoes they like to wear. And in my mind, I'm thinking, like, like running is not fun. Like, I don't, I, like, they're having this conversation. I don't even feel like I'm part of it. Eric Liddell, famous Olympic runner and Christian, said, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. And I used to say, well, God made me slow, and when I, I, when I run, I feel the curse, I feel the fall. But part of me thinks, if you like running, like running, that might be the fall. Like, we don't know for sure. Like, it's going to be hilarious, like, if we get to heaven, and all you runners get there, and then Jesus says, oh, we don't do that here. Like, people who like running, that was the fall. You didn't get that? Like, obviously. I, that's my biblical eschatology. Here's my point. We live in a fallen world. And so if the gospel doesn't change us, that we're going to live out that fallenness within the church. Look at our story. There, there, there was division in the Galatian churches because of a compromised understanding of the gospel. Right? Paul uh, tells them in our passage, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male and female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And then there was the right result of the gospel at work in believers' lives isn't division, but unity. Now, as we think through this, we might be tempted to conclude that the problem here was an application of the gospel. So while the gospel says we're all one in Christ, if we mess that up, then we won't think we're one in Christ, and it's going to lead to division. And you can imagine that's part of it. But if that were the only problem, then Paul could have simply said, the problem is you don't realize you can enjoy a a BLT with your Gentile friends, so go grab lunch together. Interestingly, that isn't what Paul focuses on. Because what was really leading to the division wasn't simply a misapplication of the gospel in practice, but the absence of the gospel's work in their hearts. Think of it this way. Imagine you have two kids fighting over a ball. Now, if it's just a matter of logistics, who has the rights to the ball, then you merely need to ask that question, which demonstrates the greatest of all parental wisdom, who had it first? And then you give the ball to the, the, the kid who had it first. But what does this imply? That the problem is about logistics, or it's an application of fairness, or it's about rules of property ownership. But in reality, what's the problem? You have two selfish boys fighting over a ball, and your solution has probably encouraged them to be more selfish and to try to be first to get the ball next time. The problem isn't an application of fairness or ownership. It's that there needs to be change in their hearts. Similarly, in our passage, this isn't just about a misunderstanding of whether the, the, we need to follow the Old Testament or can, Christians, uh, uh, with, can Jewish Christians eat with Gentile Christians. Again, if that were the case, Paul would have just told them what to do. But though that was a problem that needed to be addressed, the real problem was a shallow understanding of the gospel and a shallow faith in the gospel, which led to a shallow work of the gospel in their hearts. Backing up, consider the example of Peter Does it say he separated from the Gentiles because he just misunderstood and misapplied the gospel? No. In fact, what does Galatians tell us? That Paul knows that Peter believes the gospel. 
In chapter two, verse 16, <clears throat> he says to Peter, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Why? Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Peter believed the gospel. What then was the problem? The problem was that not only did, was that not only did Peter not recognize the fullness of the gospel, at times it was more confessional than convictional and so led to a heart that was afraid. Again, remember chapter two, verse 12, it tells us why Peter separated from the Gentiles, fearing the circumcision party. So to a degree, it was a misunderstanding of the gospel, which Paul goes to great lengths to correct. But when we read this, we realize that this wasn't just about a misapplication or a misunderstanding of gospel. This is about whether the gospel had really taken root in Peter's heart, and this because there were areas of lack of faith that led to fear. Now, we'll discuss why it leads to fear in a moment, but one thing this tells us is that we can both believe and struggle to believe. We can have belief and yet pockets of unbelief. Peter believed the gospel for salvation. He, we know he applied it to his life and to the lives of others. He was the one in Acts 10 that, that said the gospel was open to the Gentiles, but there were still pockets of unbelief, areas uh, where he trusted in the gospel, but not fully. And we all experience that, right? We, we both trust Jesus and we struggle to trust Jesus. Hopefully that makes sense, but, but getting back to our test, you see the problem. What will change the culture of our church isn't just if we know what a gospel culture looks like, but if we have experienced the power of the gospel in our hearts. Because the Bible tells us there is something about the gospel when it has its way in us that it produces this culture of love and unity. Now this leads to the question of why did a deficient faith in the gospel lead to fear in particular, in Peter. Well, to understand the issue, we need to really consider the doctrine that Paul is arguing for, right? Because he wasn't just talking about like this vague understanding of the gospel. Like right now, the term gospel is at times overused and even misused in evangelicalism. Paul was specifically talking about the doctrine of justification. As we get back to our passage, it comes at the end of an extended section on the purpose of the law in the Old Testament. Uh, Paul starts with Abraham, he goes through Moses until eventually he comes to Christ. And really, the conclusion is that while the law served its purpose, it was never meant to save people. It was always meant to lead us to Christ, the one who truly saves. Then in verse 24, he says this, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Remember, the gospel says that we're all sinners, and, and because of our sin and rebellion against the holy and righteous one who created us, we're facing just judgment. We are unholy, and we're unrighteous, and so we broke, we're in a broken relationship with our holy and our righteous God. And there's nothing we can do about it, right? No matter of obedience or carrying out the Old Testament law can fix this. On our own, God does not approve of us or accept us. But the gospel tells us that all is not lost because we have hope in Christ. He came to live the life that we weren't able to, and then he went to, cross, to the cross to suffer the punishment we deserve on, on our behalf. So he was credited with our sin and punished for it, and we were credited with Christ's righteousness. We were accepted as sons and daughters of the Heavenly Father. Justification, then, in particular, has to do with God's declaration that a person is righteous through belief and trust in the work of Christ. As one theologian writes, it's an instantaneous legal act of God in which he thinks of our sin as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. Now, obviously, this has huge salvation implications, right? 
We are only saved when we trust in the work of Jesus on the cross. But to our point and the point of our passage, it has life implications as well. Why? Because if we don't find our justification in the gospel, we will seek it elsewhere. And in other words, if I don't feel right with God based on the work of Christ, I'm simply going to seek to be right in some other way. <clears throat> and we see that all over the pages of Scripture. When you think of things like idolatry or the lives of the Pharisees or the discussions of self-righteousness in the epistles, they're all about seeking to be right in some way. And this is all of us, apart from the gospel, right? We will seek approval, pleasure, success, admiration, love, all in an attempt to be justified, to be right. In the case of the false teachers in the Galatian churches, it would come out in self-justification, the idea being, I won't just see myself as right based on the work of Christ, but the works of Christ plus my own ability to carry out the law. And that's why Paul, again, warns of the impossibility of being justified by the law. As I read in Galatians 2, 16 earlier, by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Now understand, as foreign as that might sound, we must realize that we are in danger of this as well. As Sam Albury and Ray Orland, the authors of our small group book, write, we deeply desire to save ourselves. Legalism is our native tongue. And most of us feel this. Like, we feel like, like the better we are, the more God approves of us. Or we have our own versions of, of penance when we sin and, or fail. Like, as if when we sin, we need to make it up to God in some way. Or we, we live with this picture of God as this grumpy dad waiting to punish us for our wrongdoings. And so we just gotta, be, we just gotta obey. Or though we would say we believe that God loves us, sometimes we feel like such failures, we're just not even sure that he likes us. And so self-justification is often a part of who we are. Now in the case of Peter, his gospel deficit would come out in fear and a desire to please people, right? If he didn't truly feel right with God through the gospel, then he would, he would hope to be right with those around him. That's why in chapter 2, verse 12, he separated from the Gentiles. Why? Because he feared the circumcision party. He feared their judgment, he feared their persecution, he feared looking like a bad Jew, he feared losing their approval. So despite the fact that it was hypocritical, as it says in verse 13, Paul did what he did to be justified, to be declared right and good by the circumcision party. Again, if he didn't believe he was fully justified before God, then he would seek to be justified before others. But you see the, the picture then, if I don't live every moment out of my justification, the one I find in the gospel, I will just seek my justification in some other way. And from this, as it describes in, the Galatians, in Galatians, the church won't live out the love of the gospel and the unity of the gospel. It will lead to, to, to biting and devouring one another. It will lead to distinction and division. Think about what this might look like at Lighthouse. What if, like the false teachers, we don't fully embrace the gospel and so we live out some form of self-justification? What would that look like in our church? I think one danger would be making law what was not meant to be law. In other words, the gospel's not quite enough and so I'm gonna add some aspect of the law to it. For example, I mentioned a couple weeks ago, but in a year where the news will likely be dominated by politics, we could make law things like voting and political parties. Right? You need to believe uh, in this. You need to vote in this way. You need to belong to this political party. But what other aspects of life can become law? You need to believe this. You need to hold to this. You need to educate your kids in this way. You need to serve in the church this much. 
Maybe it's turning what is gray into something that is black and white. You shouldn't watch this, or you must watch this, or you should boycott this, or you shouldn't do this, or you must do that. And if it sounds too far-fetched, I could share stories of people in our church who didn't want to be around others because they didn't hold certain beliefs. And here's the thing, there are certain things that as Christians we're supposed to believe and do, but that's not what makes us Christian. And so to quickly divide over these things is potentially making the law what was not meant to be the law. Now understand, practically speaking, each of us needs smaller relational circles uh, to do life in, especially in a, in a church our size. So maybe you're a young mom and you have close friends with other young moms, and that's great. But here are some questions you need to ask. What are the circles that I exist within here at Lighthouse? And what is the beliefs behind those circles? Are they practical? Are they spiritual? Or if you're honest, are they a bit prejudiced or selfish or narrow-minded? Are those circles dotted lines or are they open, uh, open to others? Or are they more like walls that keep certain people out? Do you venture beyond those circles often because there's just so many opportunities to serve people not within your circle? Do you see people who might not naturally fit inside your circles with suspicion or with love? Remember, our gospel convictions shouldn't lead to fighting or dividing better, but to loving better. Or moving on, what if like Peter, because we don't fully embrace the gospel, we seek our justification and the approval of others? How will that affect the culture of our church? I mean, as you can probably imagine, it would lead to a certain shallowness that doesn't go too deep. Like on one hand, not wanting to offend anyone, or on the other hand, not wanting to get canceled. Just wanting people to like you and think well of you and approve of you. Similarly, we could have a superficial attitude towards sin. On one hand, you don't, you don't confront sin or you don't point it out. You just ignore it rather than help people fight it. Also that you don't risk losing the approval of others. Or similarly, you just won't admit your own sin and struggles. So you kind of pretend you have it together. You don't let people into your life. You'd rather hide your sin than risk losing people's acceptance. Maybe instead of offering like biblical counsel, you offer platitudes, like just what you think people want to hear. Or maybe teaching is compromised. You, you lead a Bible study and, and you worry about what people think. And so you kind of keep it shallow over maybe richly and at times offensively biblical. Maybe it's avoiding wading into the messiness of life, knowing that it could be in hard conversations and uncomfortable situations. So what happens when we're not fully justified. We'll live in fear. Or what if, like Paul talks about at the end of chapter five, we don't fully embrace the gospel, and so we really elevate ourselves and our desires. How will that affect the church? We talked about this last week, but if the gospel doesn't have its way in us, then we will elevate ourselves. Rather than hearts looking upward and outward, they will constantly be bent inward but it's not hard to imagine all how selfishness can ruin a church's culture. Selfishness will stop us from greeting new people. We'll just kind of lean into those relationships that are comfortable. Selfishness will lead to a greediness with time and resources, leaving the church to be carried along by less than the full body of Christ. Selfishness will easily be offended, which will lead to conflict. Selfishness will lead to, to seeing the pastors as the focus of ministry rather than the church family doing the work of ministry. Selfishness will keep life shallow. It will prioritize family to the detriment of the church. We can go on and on, but you can see how selfishness would be a problem. So where does this leave us? First, understand that a culture, a church culture is not driven only by its gospel confessions, but its gospel convictions, meaning 
that if a church culture is driven just by gospel confessions, it'll be marked by distinction and division. That leads us to where Lighthouse needs to be. Point number three, a church culture driven by gospel conviction will be marked by unity and love. A church culture driven by gospel conviction will be marked by unity and love. We need the gospel. That's what will will unite us, right? And it's because we all have this inward bent. Even as Christians, we're tempted, as it describes in, in Galatians 5, to bite and devour. There's selfishness in all of us. I thought of various illustrations of this, but maybe because of the Counseling Teens Conference, I I thought about how I can see this in my own teens. So for example, a little while back, and I share this with their permission, my daughter tells one of her brothers, you know, I really like the name Asa. So I think if I have a kid one day, I'm gonna name him Asa. And so my son says, I'm gonna have a kid first and name him Asa, (laughs) right? So you you, you see that inward bent. So she says to him, no one's gonna marry you, right? (laughs) Inward bent. And so then he says, well, maybe, but if you get married and then get pregnant, I'm going to go to the pet store and buy a dog and name him Asa. <laughs> and then everyone's going to think, you named your kid after my dog. <laughs> Inward bent. Okay, now it's pretty harmless until I, I have both a dog and a grandson named Asa, but... <laughs> when the inward bent comes out in church, it's so dangerous, right? So what is our hope for that inward bent? It's the gospel. At its simplest, to have a gospel culture, we must be united in the gospel. Now, importantly, I didn't say united around the gospel, right? To be united around the gospel is to simply have a common goal. Like imagine you have a sports team in high school, but they have different goals. You have some players who want to be stars, some who want to impress their friends, some who are just trying to get PE credit. You can imagine there would be a lot of dysfunction on the team, selfishness, laziness, indifference, frustration. And so you might think the solution is, well, let's give them a common goal, like winning a championship. Right? They all need to have that goal in mind. They'll be united. And to a degree, that can help. But really, it doesn't address the fundamental problem with the people themselves. They're not going to really just be friends because they now have a common goal of winning a championship. They're not necessarily going to be willing to sacrifice. They aren't going to look beyond themselves. Because though they have a common goal, they haven't changed at the fundamental level. Do you have a gospel culture? It's not enough that we have a common goal or common belief. When Paul writes, right, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, his point isn't to rally them around a common commitment. His point is that when we are transformed by the gospel, the outpouring of love and kindness will lead to a gospel unity. Look at that in our passage. In verse 26, Paul writes, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So it says that that through the gospel, we become children of God. We'll look at this uh, a bit more in a couple of weeks when we get to the the, the idea of adoption in chapter four. But the idea is the gospel isn't just a theological concept. It fundamentally changes us. We were enemies. Now we are beloved. And importantly, it comes through faith. So already the imagery gets rich. The gospel is not just simply a set of creeds and confessions. It is the very power of God to bring us into his family. Paul continues, verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Those baptized into Christ is referring to the idea that by grace and through faith, it's like we participated into his death and resurrection, which means the old self has been crucified. Again, do you you kind of hear the, the transformation, right? God changes us in the gospel. It's like Paul wrote about in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. 
As one commentator writes, the phrase baptized into Christ refers to spiritual identification with and immersion into the life of Christ. And this leads to what it says, putting on Christ. The phrase is often translated clothed in Christ, and that's good imagery, right? You look at someone and you don't see them as much as you see Christ. As one commentator writes, here Paul emphasizes that those who were plunged into Christ at their conversion are now clothed with him, meaning they belong to Christ and have a new identity. And Paul uses this phrase to really describe transformation. It's not me you see anymore, it's Christ. Listen to how Paul uses this phrase elsewhere in scripture. And note that all of them talk about some aspect of transformation, of change. Romans 13, 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Ephesians 4, 24, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Colossians 3, 10, and having put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Again, picture after picture of transformation, total change. And all of that is then why Paul says in verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. He doesn't say we're all one around Christ Jesus or for Christ Jesus. It's not about just common belief or priority. Um, it's not about a common mission. We are united in Christ Jesus. And even that term in Christ, probably more of a technical term describing the, our union with Christ. The idea that we, we've been united with Christ in such a way that we receive every benefit of forgiveness and really every benefit of salvation. As I keep saying, it's about transformation. Here then is the big picture. The oneness of, that Paul talks about in verse 28 is not rooted in common belief or goal or commitment as much as a common work of grace in our hearts. We are all sinners. And yet God is willing to save us and transform us. And in those transformed lives, we'll be united. And understand that the unity that Paul describes is really otherworldly. It's stunning, it's shocking. He says there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male and female. Like as polarizing as those ideas can be now, back in the first century church, the contrast would have been even more stark. Because these were, these were classes that were ingrained within the culture at the time, and they really focused on superiority and inferiority. Jew over Greek, free over slave, male over female. In their minds, there, there, there could not be, they could not be more different. There, there could not be more disagreement. There could not be more disunity. But in this, Paul's saying the gospel changes everything. Not because it's our rallying cry, but because it's our heart cry. The gospel recognizes that all of us, every social class, every ethnicity, men and women, are sinners. And what allows us to be saved and transformed is the gospel of Jesus. This is the power of the gospel. And beloved, that's beautiful. I mean, at Lighthouse, we have people from so many walks of life, ethnic differences, socioeconomic differences. We have men and women. We have first gen, second gen, third gen, and so on. We have SoCal natives. We have people from all over the world. We have young and we have old. And yet we are one not ultimately through our common commitment because of our common experience of grace. Every Christian in this room can say the exact same thing. I was a sinner and Christ saved me. And again, this is so beautiful. Practically then, how do we get to the unity that Paul describes? After all, if you're a Christian, you already believe that you were saved by grace alone, that you're justified because of the finished work of Jesus. So what happened, like I talked about earlier, it's that on a functional level, 
day-to-day level, we often forget our justification. We choose not to embrace it or we, don't, we struggle to believe it to its fullest. Like, am I really forgiven? I described that earlier with Paul, Peter. We, we, we believe the gospel at times, struggle to believe the gospel. The solution then is we must strive to live every moment out of our justification. And this is not just a theological idea I'm coming up with. This is what Paul tells Peter. Remember, like I mentioned, the, if the problem was simply an application of the gospel, Paul would have told Peter, this is what you do. But the problem was that Peter was not living out of his justification, and so he lived in fear. And so Paul needs to tell Peter, this is what we believe. In Galatians 2.20, and this is at the end of the section where Paul's still describing his discussion with Peter. And Paul tells Peter this. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So what is Paul telling Peter? He says, we must live every moment out of our faith, out of our our understanding of our justification, out of the gospel. He says, the life I now live, we could translate it, now am living. So the life I I now living, every moment, every day, I live by faith. Faith in what? Faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You hear that? I'm I'm gonna live every moment out of the reality that Jesus gave himself for me. It's not simply a doctrine you believe once to get you into heaven. It's something you need to go back to every single day. Back to our passage when Paul says, for as many of you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. When we live by faith in our justification, we are living out the reality of putting on Christ. Now there's a lot we can do to grow in this. Last week, I mentioned the sweet practice of repentance the humble acknowledgement of our sin that invites the very grace of God into our lives. But I will also say to fight and persevere in remembering the gospel. Yesterday, Dan Nahr, our conference speaker, quoted Jerry Bridges. It's funny because I'd sent this same quote to my, my kids earlier in the week, but it says, trust is not a passive state of mind. This is by, uh, sorry, Jerry Bridges. Trust is not a passive state of mind. It is a vigorous act of the soul by which we choose to lay hold on the promises of God and cling to them despite the adversity that at times seeks to overwhelm us. Do you hear that? It's like, I'm going to fight to believe. Like every day, I'm going to fight to believe that I am forgiven in the gospel. And particularly to our point, we need to fight to consider the cross. I like the way one pastor put it. He says, we awaken each day with a tendency to forget that which is most important, the gospel. All of us should assume this tendency and be aware of this tendency. Assuming this tendency, we must create practices that will enable us to remember what we must not forget, the cross. So each day I seek to spend time in a location where I am not distracted, unhurriedly reading and meditating on scripture and finding my way in scripture to a hill called Calvary to meditate each day on Christ and him crucified. Each day I need to remind myself of the gospel. I cannot live on yesterday's recollection of the gospel. I need to review and rehearse the gospel each day or I will assume the gospel, forget the gospel and prove vulnerable to all manner of temptation and sin. And so, beloved, let us make a practice of remembering our justification and living every moment out of that justification. And do you see how this would really transform the culture of a church? 
I mean, imagine if we saw our justification fully in Christ. It would mean that we believe that the gospel is enough and we don't have to add anything to it. Things like making black and white areas, uh, making gray areas black and white, or politics, or a certain view on social issues. Meaning instead of quickly condemning someone who holds a different view, maybe even a contra scripture view, we could walk with them in love and patience, just wanting and waiting to see them grow. Instead of a lot of walls that are meant to keep people out, our circles would become dotted lines that we invite people into and that we constantly leave to love and serve others. Instead of differences being points of division, we see those differences as insight as to how we love people in a better and more particular way. Or imagine we saw our justification fully in Christ. It would mean, unlike Peter, we wouldn't have to live in fear of people. We wouldn't have to live for their approval, their admiration, their, their affirmation. And that opens up a whole new world of love within the church. Like we could really speak the truth in love. And notice I do say love. The point isn't just don't fear man and say whatever you want. We don't want to exchange lack of love for, or exchange fear of man for lack of love. But again, if we didn't fear, what might our culture be like? People willing to let people in the messiness of their lives, like actually open to sharing about their sin and suffering. So people not feeling like they have to hide from everyone. Or people willing to wade into the hard parts of other people's lives. At times challenging, correcting, yet with humility and love. Or imagine if we saw our justification fully in Christ and so we didn't have to elevate ourselves in some way. Rather than live and relate based on the inward bent of our hearts, we could live out the love that Paul so often describes in this letter. Maybe best pictured in the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Beloved, that should be what we want in this church. I mean, earlier I asked, like, what should the church, the, the culture of Lighthouse be? Just read the fruit of the Spirit, and that's what it should be. Let me close with this. As we try to live this out, I hope you realize that the gospel doesn't just help us to love well, but it's going to help us when we fail to love well. It's unfortunate, but you know one of the things that is fairly common in our counseling ministry? It's helping people who are struggling with church hurt. By that, they were hurt by a former church. Somehow they ended up with us, and they're still trying to navigate the pain of it all. And part of me is surprised at how people have been treated in churches. It really is heartbreaking. Now, the easy application is let's, let's be a church that doesn't hurt people, right? Hopefully we should try to do that. But understand the power of the gospel isn't simply that we are better at not hurting people, but there's hope that when we do hurt people. Because the reality is, if you're here long enough, you will be hurt by people in the church. The, the question then becomes, what will we do to walk through it? Right? I, I've hurt people. At times I've hurt people because I said too much, and at times I've hurt people because I haven't said anything. I've hurt people in my overthinking, and I've hurt people in my thoughtlessness. I've hurt people because I thought I knew what to do but was wrong, and at times I had no clue what to do, and I was actually right. Again, if you're at Lighthouse long enough, you will be hurt. It's hard to imagine people really doing life together who don't hurt one another. So the question isn't if it will happen, what do we do when it happens? Because on one hand, the gospel shines so brightly when we love and when we're humble and when we serve, but also shines so brightly when we confess our sin and when we forgive and when we reconcile. 
And so beloved, I pray Lighthouse would be special, not because we would just be known by our common commitment to the gospel, but because we are known by the common and yet extraordinary act of gospel grace in our lives. Will you pray with me? Dearly Father, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy and for the chance for us to consider the culture of our church, not just so that we would know what it looks like, but so that we would pursue living out of faith in our justification. And through that transformation, through the love and the humility and the kindness that comes from it, that we would be one in Christ. We thank you, Lord. We love you. We praise you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.